Well, good morning. Welcome to the AgNow Roundup. My name is Dave Deacon. Can you believe it? Back in October, we kicked off this show with our first episode, and here we are 10 episodes later. We've talked about nine crops across 12 states, and we're just getting started. And in that time, I've been asked, what is the purpose of the AgNow Roundup? Well, it's to help producers in one state learn from researchers and extension folks in another state about a crop that they have in common because it turns out not all crops, no borders. And we'll take a look back at some of the crops that we talked about in 2023 in just a few minutes. But first, let's take a look at the weather with meteorologist Matt Makins. Time for the AgDow Weather Report, kind of a recap as we close out 2023. So what have conditions been like this year? Well, temperature-wise, we've been cooler for the West, the Great Basin, into the high plains of Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas. Pretty hot year down across the South and for New England. That's a temperature breakdown for the year to date. Precip has been notable, especially early in the year. Remember that steady flow, those atmospheric rivers delivering all that historic snow and rainfall to California and Nevada. That was earlier in the year. And then we added some moisture from Montana down to the panhandles as we got into a really after about April 16th or so. But May and June, we had some additional rain come through just last week. Drier areas, Corn Belt, Southwest, and far southern Mississippi. What are we looking at as we close out the next couple of weeks? Well, temperatures overall fairly moderate, but there's going to be quite a bit of heavy precipitation. Pretty heavy totals on the way. Look at coastal areas of the west coast there. A lot of folks are going to be threes, four, five, seven. Some of the Sierras will pick up about 10 to 12 inches of total water over the next week. Sections of Arizona get pretty soggy. Nebraska on down to the south will have some heavy precip as well. So let's talk about the timeline. When is this stuff hitting? Well, here's the timeline. It goes from Monday through Thursday into Friday, and then we'll get into Christmas Eve and day. Biggest system develops over the south, pushes up toward the Great Lakes, grabs lots of moisture with it, and just kind of hangs out with us, slowly moves on through. And so it's really a complex system, kind of developing over the west as we go through later this week. And then here it is again, replay of that animation, series of a train, if you will, of moisture. One goes through, then another goes through, and the third goes through, each of which delivering heavy rainfall and some snow in cases. So again, the focus, yeah, there's a lot of water for coastal areas, but from Arizona and then you hit the plains down into the south, that's where the heaviest precip will be from these series of systems. For sections of Nebraska, anywhere from a half to one inch of rain, the same for Kansas and Missouri, but fly that map down. So we have Dallas here, New Orleans here, Jackson, Memphis. You can see that bullseye of color there, and it goes on up toward Oklahoma City. Those are going to be anywhere from one to two inch totals. Two and a half would be possible, but bottom line is kind of the average is one to two inches. So quite a bit of water there. That's going to be in the form of rain. What about snow? Snow is going to focus on the Rockies, the Sierras, and the Cascades. Uh, may get down into sections of central or southern Arizona and New Mexico, and then it stays primarily in those higher elevations. Again, as I mentioned a moment ago, 
not necessarily a big temperature impact coming through this week. Fairly moderate temperatures, so snow kind of clings to the elevations. So a lot of that precip on the precip map is going to be in the form of rain, but there will be some snow with it. Could be quite a white Christmas for areas around Denver and Cheyenne into the Rockies there. And then also we'll have some lake effect snow and some Appalachian snow here off across the east. So when you compare the precip maps, these two, then the zoomed in one to the snow, it's a pretty warm system. So quite a bit of rainfall is coming through during the course of this week. Good soaking rains, in fact. We'll catch you in the new year. I'm Matt Makins. That's your AgNow Weather Report. Well, thank you so much, Matt. We hope you have a Merry Christmas, and thanks for all of your help on the AgNow Roundup here in 2023, and we're looking forward to working with you more in 2024. It was in October of 2023 when we kicked off the AgNow Roundup, taking a look at different crops across the country through the help of the land-grant mission of many universities, extension and research departments. And we're gonna start off with a look at the 2023 crops with Dr. Ronnie Schnell of Texas AgriLife Extension, where we get an update on the Texas sorghum crop. So what are you seeing with the trial results that have come in so far? So, uh, you know, if I look at, at some of the, the trials that we have in different regions of the state, um, starting, let's say, in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, we had locations down there that were in that seven to 8,000 pound range. Uh, so very good yields uh, down there. Um, moving a bit further north into the Corpus Christi area, uh, we had yields between, let's say, 5,600 pounds, you know, right at 100 bushels, and then uh, we had some uh, locations, some entries that were going over uh, 7,000 pounds there too. Um, and moving up the coast, closer to Houston, uh, we had again some locations that were uh, seven to, to 8,000 pound grain sorghum again per acre. Um, so very good yields uh, throughout the, the Gulf Coast region. Um, a bit more mixed as we start moving north uh, let's say central Texas and moving into north central Texas. Um, those areas uh, were kind of getting a little bit caught by the, the, the wet weather that we had in April. So if they didn't get it in just before the uh, rainfall started, some of the, the plantings were a little bit delayed. So there's a little, I'd say more mixed results uh, throughout that, that north central Texas region. Uh, but uh, all that being said, the yields were, were still pretty good in most of those areas, uh, you know, generally over 5,000. And of course, back in that episode in October, we headed north to Nebraska to get an update on their sorghum crop as well. We're not quite into harvest yet. Uh, we have our beans and soybeans being harvested now. Uh, we have some corn harvest, but we're really on the brink of getting into the sorghum. Uh, but we've had kind of an interesting year. We've had some some heavy rains in some areas and and good consistency and then we've had some areas where it's been drier so it's just been all across the board this year so what are you hearing from sorghum producers across southern nebraska and northern kansas well the general is that we're probably not looking at record harvest i mean i think we're probably going to be a little bit under what we normally would say is our excitement for the harvest but i think there's going to be some high points that's going to be there um, we've had some interesting things here locally because we had some wildfire come through last year and so we're kind of really curious in some of our areas where we've had some sorghum because we're actually seeing some visual things that we're kind of curious about. And I'm sure it's become a growing question. What do you do after the wildfire? 
Well, the biggest question that came up last year is when you have a wildfire and you have a lot of the residue that's been removed because of the fire, just what is the impact of that? Is that mainly going to be a one-year thing? Is it going to be a multi-year thing? And I think based on what we're seeing this year, we really are saying this is definitely going to be a multi-year uh, event that happened uh, because when we had uh, wheat harvest that came in on areas where there had been a little bit of uh, should say wildfire last year we felt like there was maybe a 10 or 15 bushel yield drop um, for the wheat crop but on the sorghum we think it's going to be a lot more significant because we have a field of around Arapahoe we have a couple cooperators that agreed to let us pull some samples uh, they had pivots where they had uh, the wildfire was stopped where we have a line uh, and we were able to come in and pull some samples last year. We were looking at it from a soil health perspective where we pulled sample in the same pivot uh, on irrigated, but we also went to dry land. We found fields where they had a, an actual on one side fire, on the other side not fire. And so we feel like we have a pretty good control. Uh, and we saw some things that we were kind of curious about last year. This year, when we've gone back to those, uh, we had some really good rains, uh, uh, and then we had some dry weather, and then we had some rains later on. We have some sorghum that's up to uh, basically sh uh, shoulder height, uh, where they had the, the protection, they didn't have the residue that was burned off last year, side by side, right to the row you can see where that fire pulled off that residue. Uh, they, their height of their sorghum is only about up to the knee. When a lot of folks think of corn, they think of the I-States and I-80. But of course, there is a lot of corn that grows across the southern parts of the United States. We took a look at the southern corn crop back in October, whenever we talked to Dr. Jason Kelly with the University of Arkansas Extension, and of course, Dr. Ron Heinegger with North Carolina State University. So just whenever it comes to planted acres, are, are, are we seeing an increase in the number of acres across North Carolina? Well, yeah, compared to the I-States, I often say that uh, we're a way distance uh, apart from them. Uh, we have roughly, yeah, over the last five years, we've grown anywhere from about 950,000 to a million acres of corn. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a drop in the bucket in Iowa as far as acres goes. Uh, we used to, you know, back in the turn of the century, I'm talking about the turn of the 20th century, not the 20th, not to this century, back in the 1900s, why we had over two and a half million acres of corn, but, but you have to remember there's been a lot of uh, uh, development in the Carolinas, uh, uh, you know, many of our corn acres were in the Piedmont. Those are now houses or, or reforested that, that try to reduce erosion. So, so we're down to about a million acres. Now, we ranked about 18th, 17th, 18th in the nation as far as the amount of corn we produce. So generally, we're around 120 million, 100 million, 120 million bushels. Uh, this year, our yields look really good. I think we may have close to a record corn crop in North Carolina. I might miss it by just a little bit, but our yields have been really, really good. Our average yield, in, by the way, in North Carolina is 145, 50 bushels to the acre. Not again, not a, uh, not like some of the Corn Belt states, but that's not a bad yield. I think we may top that this year. 
uh, in yield. We're very similar to the uh, rest of the country. We we're increasing yield year over year to do the better hybrids, management, those kind of things. So we try to stay relevant in, in terms of acres and yield here in this state. Dr. Kelly, tell us about uh, the corn crop across Arkansas. Yeah, Dave. We we overall we had a a, a really a pretty good corn crop Th this year. We ended up planting eight hundred and fifty thousand acres according to the last uh, USDA numbers, and you know that's not a record, but it's almost a record. And so eight hundred and ninety thousand, I believe, was uh, the record. Uh, but before that, you'd have to go back to early nineteen fifties before we had that kind of acreage. So I think we had the second highest acreage in the last seventy years or so. And so, you know, we we had a lot more corn, and I think part of that is we had uh, the, the a good planting window. So April, uh, March, April were relatively dry for us, and that's really what we got to have to get get the corn acres planted timely. And so. This year we got everything planted really timely. Uh, yeah, you know the season-wise, uh, you know the, we're we're essentially done with harvest right now. There's still maybe a little bit of corn out there right now, but but we're essentially done. And you know the estimates, yield estimates are coming in about 180 bushels per acre, which which is pretty good. You know, uh, you know I think most people don't realize that uh, a majority of our corn can be irrigated. So pro probably maybe more so than uh, many of our surrounding states. So that, that for us, when we have a dry summer, which, which we did have a dry summer this year, that the ability to irrigate helps take out those up, ups and downs that we typically get. And so, you know, 180 bushel crop is uh, really about our 10-year average on yield. And so I, I think uh, initially I thought we would probably have a little yield than that and and in the end those numbers still may go up a little bit but we had some wind storms there in june that, that caused a lot of green snap a lot of lodging in certain areas and i think statewide that that probably pulled the the uh, yield a little bit for us if you grew wheat in 2023 i don't need to tell you that it was a rough year for the crop but we did check in with Dr. Romulo Lolato with Kansas State University to get a recap of the 2023 wheat crop. And we also talked with Dr. Brian Arnell with Oklahoma State University to see if there was anything that producers could do to help with the 2024 wheat crop. With a smaller crop, did we see higher proteins across the state uh, with the wheat that was coming in? Were, were, were there any bright spots to the 23 crop? Usually we that, that's what we see, right? We see a... a um lower yield and that kind of relates to a higher protein right so definitely there was more protein out available uh, last year than in a normal year now last year was also kind of funny because um, some of the rainfall came late right? right we had some rainfall that came out late may and and, and early june across the state and temperatures were pretty cool until that mid-june time frame right so that combination uh actually for those fields that were exposed to that combination, proteins were more at the average level, right? Because, again, the late season, cool temperatures and a little bit of moisture available uh, still made up that we, that we compensated a little bit of the, the low yield potential. But it was definitely above average protein compared to a normal Kansas crop. So that, I guess, it's on the upside, right? Um, even though from the meal perspective, uh, they, they can kind of source that protein if they need it to from, from elsewhere as well. But it's also always good to have it in the state and make sure that things uh, that, that we'd stay within and, and we actually have a good market for that. So at least on that was a, was an upside. Uh, 
but I guess the bigger picture upside that we had was that the late season, cool temperatures, and some moisture that came down in parts of the state, uh, they at least ensured that we didn't have a complete failure, right? I think that, that was the biggest picture of last year, is that uh, mid-May, we're starting to travel around the state doing with uh, with our wheat plot tours, and it was very depressing, right? It was, uh, it was very depressing because, um, just because of the conditions of the crop. But then temperatures started to cool down a little bit, uh, and, and uh, we had some moisture that came down that helped the crop at least make sure that we didn't have a complete failure on last year's wheat crop. There, there was uh, a little bit of moisture a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, wheat producers were excited. They got out there. They, they said, hey, I'm, I, it's early. I'm planted into this little bit of moisture. Mm -hmm. Has it has has it come up at all? And if so, if not, what should producers be doing? So really, uh, you know, I took a took a trip across the the high plains uh, last week doing some corn harvest, and what I seen at least in that northwest segment, which I would say was probably similar southwest, those that got it in ahead of the rain uh, got a really good stand, and so those that had the rainfall, we've got some really good stands out there. Uh, you can definitely start seeing now the pockets that only had enough to germinate and get up and moving because I have seen some of the early planted wheat, even around the Stillwater region, starting to turn blue. Uh, on that early grazed wheat, we're starting to see uh, drought stress symptomology from Stillwater down through our southwest part of the region into Altus. Like I said, our northwest, we've got some really nice pockets. Those that came in after the rain, uh, you can really see uh, drill depth differences. So I see a lot of spotty emergence, stand emergence across that northwest corridor. And so you could really look at about every field and guess about when it was sown. And unfortunately, like I said, there's a lot of, lot of wheat being drilled the last week or so, last five days uh, that is being dusted in. Is, is the crop salvageable in those situations where it was planted and then uh everything dried out the wind dried out the the soil and and you know there there really is no moisture to speak of right now yeah absolutely you know we still wheat's an amazing crop it's a resilient crop a tough crop what we're looking for now is that that rain event that doesn't just germinate we do need something our greatest fear of those that dust in wheat is that we get a quarter of an inch or a, a less than half an inch and that we germinate and that we get another rise in temperature and it gets hot. So what we need is this cool temperature, this cool front that came through to maintain some cooler temperatures, lower evapotranspiration, and enough moisture, not just to germ, but start getting some subsoil moisture uh, rebuilt. And so, yeah, I mean, wheat's never out of the game. Uh, even last year throughout the drought, there was a lot of wheat that would have been zeroed out or was zeroed out. And then a last minute rain comes in and it saves it. Uh, Dr. Jeff Edwards, as you remember, our, our former department head now to Arkansas, always had a saying that, that wheat is always one day from death. It's always tomorrow. And That's so right. we tend to have one more extra day with, with wheat. 2023 will go down as a hit or miss year whenever it comes to the cotton crop. As we find out with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension's Dr. Jordan Bell, in addition, we had an opportunity to find out what it was like from a producer's standpoint, as we found out from talking with Matt Moeller from Southwest Oklahoma. How, how is the crop across your area? Um, it started off looking good. Uh, we, had we had challenges getting stands with hailstorms and uh, one heavy rainfall event in isolated areas, but uh, 
we got off to a very good start and operating on the potential with El Nino bringing moisture in to break the drought, uh, we were very optimistic early on. But as the summer wore on and the temperatures continued to climb and stay high and the rain never showed up, uh, we just were on a slow burn from about mid-July on. And so now most all the cotton in the area has been failed. Uh, if it didn't fail, it is salvage operation, barely covering harvest costs for the most part. Unless you were in an isolated pocket that got a pop-up shower too, then it then it might be a, a tick above that. But it, it's a very bad crop follow, following last year's bad crop. How has the, uh, the, the Texas cotton crop looked this year? So it has just been an extreme season for the Texas High Plains cotton crop. You know, we started in May and June coming out of this uh, winter drought, very dry conditions, and all of a sudden we received anywhere from 11 to 20 inches of rain across the Texas High Plains. And as we look at that rainfall, you know, it was a blessing because we filled a lot of soil moisture profiles. But then again, when we receive, you know, that much rain, we also wind up with a lot of runoff and rain in playas, regardless of tillage practices and soil management practices. But as we look at those rainfall events, they also came with cool conditions. So much of the cotton that was planned, especially as we focus on like the Panhandle and Amarillo North, um, that cotton wasn't even planted. We are actually down several hundred thousand acres north of Amarillo. And then as we moved into June, um, it started to warm up, which was great. We had really excellent stands. And with every rainfall event that came, we had a hailstorm. And so it was just really hard to see so many fields hailed out. So we lost a lot of cotton early this year just because it was either too wet to plant or it was hailed out. And so as we look at the difference between the 2022 crop and the 2023 crop, um, you know, we just have really reduced production potential in this region. And of course that hurts at the farm level, but we know that's really gonna hurt our gins and just the industry that supports um, cotton production in this region as well. Moving south from Amarillo, we really had um, an opportunity to, uh, I guess, because it, we, we are able to capture more growing degree days down a little farther south and we get to the Lubbock area. Um, a lot of that cotton was still planted later. Producers can still plant later down in that area. And so it became um, really favorable early on. But then when we hit July and into early August, it was extremely hot. We were looking at periods of you know, 105 degrees plus for days on end. And of course, the winds that came with that really drove the crop water demand. And we wound up with a lot of squares that dropped during that early square period. And so that resulted in a reduced yield potential. And um, it's been really hard to see a lot of producers who had very good stands early on just south of Amarillo because of ideal planting conditions have failed their crops because of um, bowl numbers and they just don't have the yield potential out there because of the heat and the lack of rain moving into the summer. So it's been just a 
season of extreme conditions. And, and now as we look at irrigated cotton, there's some really nice irrigated cotton out there. One of the shining points in crop production in 2023 would have to be the canola crops across North Dakota and Washington State. We did catch up with Dr. Anitha Shermamulo of North Dakota State University and Dale Whaley of Washington State University to see how the canola crops did across their states. I don't know how many of you know, but uh, North Dakota is the number one producer of uh, canola uh, in U.S. And uh, within uh, uh, North Dakota, Cavalier County is the uh, uh, number one county, or we have the largest acres of producing canola because um, the weather is so good in this uh, area that is so congenial for canola production. Um, it's, a, it's a perfect fit for this crop to be grown in this area, and we have uh, uh, the farmers adopted it uh, fairly quickly, and uh, they've been growing since like almost more than a decade, and and it's it's been a fantastic crop in our area, giving us good yields and uh, and. And good profit. Whenever a producer is thinking about moving into canola, what are some things that they need to be taking into uh, consideration? Um, I think uh, weather plays m a major role in this uh, uh, selection of the crop. Um, canola likes that cool uh, conditions during its early stage of the crop. Um, so I think uh, that plays an very important role and uh, pH of the soil, the, so the soil can be anywhere from like uh, medium to like clay, uh, heavy soils. It does very, very good in those soils. Um, light soils and sandy soils, I don't think that would be a, a good one. Soil should be fairly, it, it, it does require a lot of nutrients, so um, uh, fairly good fertile soils. Um, pH is anywhere between uh, um, um, 7 to 8-ish. It doesn't like two saline soils um, or acidic soils. So it's kind of like that neutral to a little um, on the um, ab about the uh, 7 pH base. So it, it, it would do fairly between good between 6.5 to 8. Um, so I think those those are the conditions you need to look for. When it comes to canola in your corner of the world, what type of questions do you get from canola producers? So the type of questions that we get uh, generally from people that are that want to transition from, uh, uh, you know, a winter wheat on winter wheat rotation and they want to get some rotational benefit from a crop like canola, the first thing they often ask us is, you know, what, how do I plant this? Do I plant it the same way as wheat? Uh, do I seed the same depth? Do I seed uh, the same rate? Uh, you know, how far do I get it into moisture? And, you know, questions like that. What kind of variety should I use? Uh, is there anything of concern when I want to go to canola? And, and I tell guys, yeah, you need to watch your, your herbicide, you know, history. There's a number of different pests that you're going to have to become familiar with, um, unlike those that attack wheat or peas. Growing up in the Southern Great Plains, I've had the opportunity to learn about many of the crops around the area. But when it comes to 2023, I got to interview Dr. Bruce Lindquist with the University of California about rice. Although Arkansas is the top producing state, 
California is a close second. Turns out they grow a special kind of rice that almost anybody who has had sushi has had. So I guess let's start out with a overview of rice production across California, but then also the United States. Yeah, uh, thanks Dave. Um, rice is grown primarily in the Southern US in the Mid-South. Uh, Arkansas is the biggest producer of rice in the US. About 50% uh, of rice comes from Arkansas. Um, California is the second largest producer of rice with about 20%. And then other uh, states that are producing rice include Texas, um, Missouri, Mississippi, and Louisiana, all, all producing uh, rice. There's a little bit in, in South Carolina and Florida as well, but those are the, the main states. Um, it's unique in, in a number of ways. Um, one is it's, it's eaten as a full grain. Um, in many cases, um, you know, your wheat, your soybean, your uh, corn, um, you're, you're grinding up those products. So a lot of what's important in rice is the whole grain quality. Um, and a lot of practices, especially at the end of the season, are targeted uh, to make, to, to get good quality in your grain so the, the uh, it mills properly and you're getting a lot of whole grain. Um, you don't get a lot of chalkiness. You want translucent rice. Um, so yeah, there's some unique practices to rice and because it's a whole grain, it's, it's, um, it's important to keep those quality factors in mind. When it comes to rice production, take us from the time that it's planted to whenever it's harvested. And, and, and is there any special way to that harvest? Okay, um, I'm going to keep it broad here, not just California, um, but broadly, uh, rice in, in the in the mid South in Louisiana, they can be harvesting or planting. I'm sorry, um, as early as they, they could be planting in February. Uh, here in California, uh, we're typically planting in May, uh, so there's a fairly broad harvest window. Uh, or planting window with harvests usually starting either in August and here in California, we're still harvesting and we're, we're into November. It's a late year for us to be harvesting. It, it's not really good. Um, the other thing is that a big difference between the Southern US and California is they, they plant uh, rice very much like they would uh, plant a corn crop. They drill seed rice and then after about a month, they would come in with a flood, a permanent flood until the end of the season where they drain it for harvest. That's called dry seeding or drill seeding rice. In California, we water seed. We flood the, we flood the field and then we aerially plant uh, seed into that standing water. And typically the soil will, the field will remain flooded for, for much of the season until about three weeks before harvest uh, when it's drained to allow combines onto the field. So the fields are harvested, well, they, they might be a bit muddy, but they're harvested with combines with uh, conventional uh, equipment. The AgNow Roundup was created to help producers that grow crops in different states, one like soybeans. Did you know that they're grown in almost 30 states across the country? And as you can imagine, there's different issues in different states, all for the same crop. And to talk about soybeans, we started from the south and moved our way north with Auburn University's Dr. Eros Francisco. And then we headed over to Oklahoma State University to talk with Dr. Josh Lofton. And then a couple weeks later, we headed north to talk soybeans with Dr. Jonathan Kleinjohn of South Dakota State University.
how are things looking across Alabama when it comes to soybeans in 2023? Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Dave. Uh, this morning is um, kind of different than you. You have a blue sky. I have a, sh a cloudy sky. But anyways, well, soybeans in 2023 in Alabama were a little bit worse than last year. I think last year was better. Uh, corn was not not good last year, but it was wonderful this year. And it was the opposite for soybeans. Soybeans were greater last year, and not, and it was okay this year. Uh, some issues here and there that we can discuss. What has your drought uh, outlook been, or I guess what's the drought situation been throughout Alabama this year? Well, this year was uh, pretty much in the in the northwestern part of the state was very dry, uh, and it was dry for almost months, two months, or very little rain very high temperatures over hundreds uh and that affected very much that part of the state and we are talking about lauderdale limestone uh lawrence morgan Colbert county uh that north part of the tennessee river uh, is still alabama uh not tennessee but still alabama mm -hmm. while the rest of the state was okay regarding rain uh, or precipitation. So in the south, we have the Gulf Coast conditions that is, they got some some dry weather here and there, but not not so bad. Uh, in the northeastern part of the state, that is in the Sand Mountain uh, portion of the state, that was okay. The rains were, I mean, not so good, but they were not as bad as the other part, the, the western part. Yeah, I mean, we're 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 getting the last acres kind of in the bend. I think um, for the, for the most part, we're we're done across the state. Um, we we might have some really late double crop acres that are still out there, but for the most part, we're we're pretty much in. And it's it's been a mixed year. Uh, it's uh, of course it was a very dry year for us for the bulk majority of the summer, uh, and so that caused some issues, just like any other year in Oklahoma. It really depended on what mile marker you you had your farm to to determine how how well you yielded based on if you got that pop up rain shower or you didn't. Um, we have some some of our our uh, producers across the state are reporting very nice yields, particularly of the later planted. So our double crop or just the the later planted soybean systems are are doing a little bit better, a little fairer across. Um, e even some of our growers that planted full season, so that April or May planted soybeans, they they didn't produce anything. They hate up the crop and, and 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 took it out before we even got to the end of the season. So it's it's been very similar to what you would uh, remember the 2022 on. Um, although it, it we are getting better. That that later crop, that double crop, or, or that later planted soybean um, does hold some promise to us, and we we've, we've we've seen some really nice yields from those. Why does it seem that a double crop seems to work better than a full season crop in, in your state? Yeah, so in, in Oklahoma, in, well, in soybean in general, the whole intent is to try to match um, good rainfall with some moderate temperatures during the most critical stages of soybean production. So we're talking about flowering, uh, post-flowering into pod development and into seed fill. And so uh, in Oklahoma, if we plant in April and, and we really hit into a rough July, that's when we really start seeing pond fill and, and seed fill really start ramping up, especially that later into July, first part of August. And, and that in Oklahoma, is, it can be our, our hottest and our driest periods. And, and this year, depending on where you were, that was a hot and dry period. 
The thing that really got us this year, though, Dave, is is that September. We had September record high temperatures. We had temperatures well into the hundreds uh, throughout August into September, and that really that really took a lot of our our um, normal season or that early planted that April and May planted systems that took them uh, down a peg, or or it made them to where they didn't even yield. Where our double crop systems didn't even start going to reproductive until that later part of September into October. Uh, and so we, we got a lot more favorable conditions then with some rain showers, maybe some more moderate temperatures. And, and those late season rains really helped us out on the double crop. So it's all about matching what we typically get as good conditions with the most critical times of that soybean plant. And, and for Oklahoma, the double crop, while it is riskier because we do plant it later and we typically have a shorter crop that does not have as long to develop, um, it also it also gets paired with with typically some much more favorable conditions on on that back end of the season. How was the twenty three crop whenever it comes to soybeans? I would say the soybean crop was was average to above average, and I would say very surprising for the weather that we had this year. Uh, very dry early spring, uh, which you know doesn't always equate to soybean yields, but uh, rains were not uh, not widespread for the most part, and and we were kind of apprehensive all summer, but uh, yields turned out to be. Uh, fairly good in most areas. Overall, is South Dakota an, an irrigation state whenever it comes to South or to soybeans? Um, I would say we're more dryland production. You know, it's kind of spotty depending on the area of the state you're in. Some areas have a little bit lighter soils, um, but uh, overall, I'd say most of it's not irrigated. What part of the state do you see most of the soybean production? Because I I know kind of. Uh, across the southern part of the uh, southern or, or the southern part of the Great Plains, it kind of tends to be uh, east of I-35, kind of the center part of the state. D is that kind of the, the same situation in South Dakota? Well, I would say, in, you know, in South Dakota, east of the river is, is our the majority of our cropland. And, you know, soybeans started out primarily on the in the eastern part of the state, and they've kind of gradually worked their way to the west. You know, as far as as large production areas, I would say, you know, most of it is, is well, our big production counties would be Brown County up in the north, north central part of the state, Spink County up there. But I mean, they're produced all over, um, even, even going west now. You never used to really see soybeans west of the river, and you're starting to see that more and more. But still, the primary production area would be uh, the eastern third to, to eastern half. So this week on the Ag Now Roundup, we're learning about sugar beet production in the northern Red River Valley of Minnesota and North Dakota from Dr. Tom Peters with the University of Minnesota and North Dakota State University. Thank you for going on with us this morning, Dr. Peters. And I guess let's start out with what makes the Red River Valley of Minnesota and North Dakota so perfect for sugar beet production? Yeah. So, you know, we have about 60% of the 1.1 million acres of sugar beets. And there's a, a reason for that, Dave. So, first of all, and I got to end with the most important part. So, I'll start with, with the, the softer ideas. We have really good soil for growing sugar beets with um, high water holding capacities meaning that our sugar beets are not irrigated. Now we have some acres, but by and large, we're, we're relying on, on mother nature for rainfall to grow our crop. Number two, you know, um, during the summer, we have 16 hour days here. 
So those, you know, days where the sun is out at 5.30 in the morning and doesn't set till 9.30 at night really right. benefits sugar beet production. Um, um, in the fall, we start to get cooler. We have cooler nights in September and October, and that's important during the sugar accumulation um, phase. And then finally, we have cold winters. So it's the 27th of November and it's 15 degrees outside my office today. And those cold winters are good for storing sugar beets. So we're able to store them outside from October all the way to the end of the processing campaign, which can go into mid or late May. So it's uh, several factors that contribute to this being an area that is good for sugar beets. Is it a rotational crop or, or is it just a primary, every year we go back to sugar beets in this area? The rotation, and that's an excellent question. The rotation is extremely important. So sugar beets are, um, do not, I would call them wimps if you don't mind me saying that. <laughs> they don't do very well with diseases especially. So we, we are usually on a four-year rotation. We'll rotate with uh, grass and broadleaf crops. But the year before sugar beets, we would prefer to have uh, a grass crop. So either corn or, and I'll say most of the time, it's small grains, wheat, barley, oats. That is the previous crop. But that four-year rotation is critical to um, having a healthy sugar beet crop. And then last but not least, we headed to Nebraska to learn about sunflower production from Dr. Cody Creech of the University of Nebraska. Yeah, so sunflowers have, of course, have historically been grown here in Nebraska, uh, primarily here in the panhandle of Nebraska. Uh, acreage is, can, can vary year to year depending on uh, the type of moisture we have available to us, but uh, we typically, fall around that 50,000 acre mark, sometimes as high as 75, 80,000. Um, uh, but uh, just depends on the year. Um, a, a lot of folks like sunflowers because they do well in our environment. And so I think they'll always have a place uh, in our cropping systems out here. Are they a rotation crop or are they uh, a, a primary crop uh, used, used, for, used as a, I can't even speak. Are, are, they a, are, are they primarily a cash crop or a rotation crop? I would see them as more of, well, you, you know, it's gonna be a little bit of both. So um, they're not kind of, they're not the cornerstone of most people's crop rotations. Uh, uh, that still remains wheat, uh, uh, winter wheat in, in our area here. However, when we include sunflowers in our crop rotations, we typically see a really positive benefit when it comes to uh, profitability of our rotations. And, and so uh, if we move away from wheat fallow and get into a more diverse crop rotation that includes sunflowers, we often see that bottom line improve uh, quite a bit. And with that, we wrap up the 2023 season of the AgNow Roundup. And on a personal note, I wanna thank everybody who supported us as we launched earlier this year. It's very humbling and we're excited about what 2024 will bring. So stick around for that. 
If you'd like to learn more about any of our guests or anything that we've had on the show, check out our website. It is agnowtv.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our social media, sign up for the email, and you can also download the Agnow TV app. We've got all of the past episodes on the app, along with many video resources from land grant universities as well. So be sure and download that. It's free of charge. It's all on the Agnow TV app. From our farm to your farm, have a Merry Christmas and a blessed 2024. We'll see you next time.